All right, hello everyone, welcome. Uh, no further extensions here, uh, can't have any last minute extensions. That's the only Brexit joke I'm making tonight, that's it. <laughs> so you can relax. Uh, I'm Alex Hochuli, I'm the anchor and one of the co-producers of Auf Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history, and this is Bunga Live. This is our first live event, and so hello to all of you in the room, and also hello to people following us on the live stream. For those of us, for those of you rather, who don't know us, uh, we are global, not just in what we cover, but also where we're based. I'm based in Sao Paulo, Brazil. George Hoare here in the front, Phil Cunliffe here in the front are based in the UK, and Ben Fogel is uh, following us from Brazil as well, and he's normally based somewhere between New York and, and Brazil, seems to be the way. Um, it's also appropriate that our guests have flown in from all sorts of places. Uh, Catarina Principi here has flown in from Portugal, David Adler has flown in from Athens, and Lee Jones has probably walked over what is about 300 meters from his office here at <laughs> Queen Mary. Uh, I'm going to introduce them in full in just a second, but just a little bit more about what we do uh, as a podcast. Our starting point is that the end of history, the period in which technocratic consensus politics ruled over the West for the past 25 years or so, and was meant to last forever, has now ended. But nothing's emerged to take its place. So we're interested in figuring out what might take its place, what comes next, and also in exploring radical possibilities today. And part of what we're doing today is uh, fits in very nicely with that. I just wanted to highlight some themes of what we like to cover, what we have covered, what we're going to continue covering in the, in the future. Just for example, the politics of anti-corruption, which we've looked at in Brazil and Nigeria, uh, the way that countries in the developed global north seem to be increasingly like the global south uh, in places like Italy or the USA, or the hysterical reaction of liberals to their loss of influence suddenly felt around 2016, something that we call neoliberal order breakdown syndrome. We might even reference that today. Uh, and we also like to cover things like the new emerging forms of authoritarianism in places like Hungary or Turkey, uh, or the links between a cult of entrepreneurialism and fascism. Uh, if you like these ideas, you should check us out. Uh, but that's enough about us. I want to introduce today's guests. I want to welcome them, but also welcome them back, because they've all been guests on the podcast before, and hopefully many more times in the future. Before I introduce them, I have to say a big thanks to Queen Mary University, and specifically to Lee Jones here, uh, who is, I guess, technically our host today. So thank you, Lee. Um, so let me introduce the speakers, and I'll introduce them in the order in which they will speak. David Adler here first is a writer and researcher based in Athens. He serves as the policy coordinator for the European Spring, Europe's first transnational party who are soon launching. He might mention some a, a bit more about that shortly. Uh, and this party is led by Yanis Varoufakis. Uh, David was previously a housing activist and researcher uh, in London. So welcome back to London, I guess. Uh, Catarina Principi, speaking second, is a social movement activist from Portugal. She's a member of the Bloco de Esquerda and a contributing editor at Jacobin. She's the co-editor of the book Europe in Revolt, and she contributes frequently to debates on the EU and strategy for the left. And thirdly, Lee Jones, who I've already mentioned, is reader in international politics here at Queen Mary University of London, studying political economy, social conflict, state transformation, and security in the global south. And he's an activist in the universities and college union and a co-founder of The Full Brexit. So can we welcome all our speakers? <laughs> One more thing to stress before we actually kick off the debate and I introduce a little bit about what we want to explore here. 
we're very happy to have these guys, not just because they're brilliant and very interesting and always have interesting things to say, but this is also not just an academic debate. These are all political activists in various guises and represent organizations and political positions with real stakes in the future of Europe. So I think that's another reason we're very happy to have them here, not just because of their insights, but because they represent real positions. And we hopefully can clarify those a little bit as we go forward today. So one little last word about what this debate is about. We're not here just to rehash Brexit debates. I'm sure all of you who live here have had it up to here with a lot of Brexit debates and over the past three years. Our scale here is Europe as a whole. And our starting point is that the EU in its current form is a problem. We're not here to debate is the EU good or bad or anything like that. We're assuming that it's a problem because of its undemocratic nature and its increasingly anti-democratic trajectory. I think we would all here on this panel agree with that. The EU, and especially monetary union, the Euro, is riven with contradictions. Elites, both at the national level and the European level, seem to have no solutions other than a hardening of the EU's worst aspects. So where do we go from here? As the slogan goes, another Europe is possible. Another Europe, I would suggest, is necessary. But how? So will progress be provoked by unilateral exit? So an Italian exit or a Frexit or whatever neologism you care to invent uh, to follow a Brexit, or would that be a disaster? Is the EU reformable? So that's what we're here to debate. Each speaker is going to get 10 minutes. It's not a long academic lecture to start off with. Each get 10 minutes, and then we're going to have a bit of a debate amongst ourselves here on the panel and open up to loads of question and answers. We want it to be a really rolling, ongoing discussion between all of you, between these guys. Uh, so I hope you will participate and uh, we'll make that all work. If you're following us online, please send us questions, type in questions. We're going to read them out and try to do this virtual interaction thing as well. I guess we're at a podcast, so this is the global digital thingamajig <laughs> that we do. Uh, if you want to tweet about it, the hashtag is BungaLive. All right, so David, get us kicked off. Sure thing. I'll be standing just because it makes me slightly more comfortable. <laughs> and will project and time myself. Right, okay. To start, I, uh, I would like to, to disappoint all of you, especially I understand that uh, in the context of this panel, I was brought here uh, as a bit of a shill for the European Union, <laughs> an apologist for its crimes, who's supposed to be arguing that the, the prosperity and peace brought by this great union uh, excuses the concentration camps on its borders and the economic tyranny that emerges from its core. Unfortunately, that's not my position. I agree wholeheartedly with your view that the EU is indeed a neoliberal cabal, guilty of crimes against the humanity. So tonight, on the contrary, it's going to be my primary argument that the positions we three represent are actually complementary and not, as our dear hosts, would have it uh, in, in conflict. Now, to make this case, I want to begin by, uh, by offering some good news and some bad news. As is traditional, I'll, I'll start with the bad news. The European Union is not going anywhere. The fortification of the EU that's come as a result of Brexit is pretty much as much evidence as we need. And the fact that almost all the arguments, major arguments for, for exit that we saw on the left and the right has transformed in the past nine, ten months into arguments for taking over the European Union. We can see this in terms of where Salvini is at, as well as in terms of where the left has gone across much of its periphery. Now, I want to be clear on this point, that, 
that that transformation is not actually just because of the authoritarian grip that the EU holds uh, over its empire, as uh, Wolfgang Strake uh, has recently described it. It's also because of a widespread and durable democratic consensus across virtually the entire Union. People just still, for some reason, like the European Union. So you might want to call that Stockholm Syndrome, and I'm sure we'll get to that in a second. But um, just as you know, Remainers need to respect the outcome of the, the Brexit referendum here in Britain, we also need to reckon with the fact that the EU does indeed have a democratic mandate. Now, many Eurosceptics love to argue that my position, let's call it the transform the EU position, or the transnationalist one in the context of this debate, is a fantasy, because another Europe is unlikely. Um, but I would argue that the, the end of the EU, at least in the short and medium term, is the real fantasy. So I want to begin this debate by grounding us in this bad news. Admit that my demand to transform the EU is above all the most practical demand that we can make in the context of Europe today, politically. All right, now the good news. The European Union is in a near constant state of exception. There have been almost no movement in the last 10 years in terms of treaties, and they've relied almost exclusively on emergency orders and patchwork legislation. Now, for many leftists, this is just further evidence that the EU is an authoritarian nightmare. We damn the treaties to the one hand, and of course we damn their exceptions on the other. Uh, in rule as an exception, the EU just works to protect the interests of French and German capitalists. But I want to argue that this, I think, should inspire my, our, transformational agenda. Because the fact that the EU is riddled with exception, I think, is very, very good news. The fact that, for example, the Gilets Jaunes were able to force the EU to make exceptions to minimum wage, to minimum wage laws, which it, of course, did not uh, allow in Italy, should inspire us, I want to argue tonight, that a movement that is as large, as vicious, and as transnational, and, and more transnational in scope, which I want to posit has never been tried, we simply have never seen a movement of a gilet jaune scale and scope in Europe, could force the hand of the European Union to make those types of concessions from Portugal all the way to Poland. Now, I personally find this tremendously exciting because I believe that the EU, once democratized, offers a unique and historic example to develop a transnational politics for the many. We already know very well, all of us in this room, that the EU enables very powerful coordination between the ruling classes of different countries. And I believe, having designed the Electoral Manifesto for our own coalition, European Spring, that those same mechanisms of coordination can be repurposed for the interests of workers. In just the same way, that the nation-states once belonged exclusively to its ruling class, and then it was democratized, leading to massive reforms and welfare states for the many, and redistribution across massive territories like Britain. So the EU, I believe, can do the same, again, once democratized, and it is a huge if, if we can democratize it. At the same time, we've seen time and again the ways in which capital is able to defeat countries who strike out on their own. So we know, all of us, we know that international solidarity of the substantive variety, not merely the symbolic variety, tweeting we stand in support of our Brazilian brothers and sisters for whom Bolsonaro was a threat, that we need that kind of substantive solidarity to protect against collective strikes, capital flight, all the rest of it. And I believe, once democratized, the EU provides exactly the kind of mechanism that we need for building substantive solidarity. But let's just say, as I'm sure many of you do, you disagree with all of what I said. You think that you know, such hopes 
for the EU could become are all nonsense, even if those institutions were to monetize. And you say, look, I refuse to spend a single second of my life or a single dollar of my political party's funds defending this indefensible set of institutions. It's simply a fool's errand along the lines that uh, I'm suggesting. So here's where I want to make my, my real intervention tonight, to convince you that our approaches are actually complementary. I want to convince you that my position, calling for a transnational movement to transform the EU, which, again, has never been done, is actually the best way to get your precious exit. Call it Catal exit or Frexit. So here we return to the deep unpopularity of the exit position in Europe. You simply do not have the public support in virtually any European country to exit the European Union. Even here in Britain, the Leave Vote 1 only was able to succeed, only was able to cross that 52% threshold because a bunch of madmen did fund a mass campaign with including many lies about NHS funding. Now, I don't want to get into what happened in the Brexit campaign, but everyone here will admit that's not. that we only got over we only got over the hump. There's a lot of lot of exit feelings, but we only got over the hump because of a lot of lies. Anyway, let's put that to one side. There's an honest question here. How are you going to convince these large swathes of Europeans who, Europeans who support the European Union actually to exit? And that's the question we just settled tonight, I think. So my answer? My answer is by showing them that the European Union is unequivocally truly against their interests. I think that's how you win that debate. Not by simply pointing to Greece in 2015 and saying, aha, look what they did to those Greeks. You need to show them in their own contexts that, that the European Union is against them. To do that, I will argue, you need to show that even when all of Europe is united in calling for reform, is standing behind the program of transformation, is demanding a democratic constitution, is marching in the streets, demanding basic decency along its borders, an end to fortress Europe, that even then the EU is incapable of listening. Only then will you really get the destruction of the EU that many of these exiteers so badly pray. So you may be wondering, what do I think about Brexit? Let's go back to that question that I got many uh, frowning faces in the audience. What do I think about Brexit or Brexit or even Portuguese exit for that matter? I personally think it's fantastic. If people want to leave the European Union, then fantastic, they should go. We all agree the EU is awful. But my position, and I believe that because I think we need multiple lines of attack. Because of course this sort of doctrine, this ideology of TINA that prevails in, in Brussels, we need many, many lines of attack to show that many things are possible. We need to radically expand the realm of possibility in all directions while keeping our minds clear about the need and the shared value of international solidarity. If, if Portugal or, or, or Britain or Greece for that matter were able to leave and demonstrate how on their own, they were able to initiate a socialist revolution that would not have been possible on the inside, that would put incredible pressure on the EU institutions to change their ways or risk a further crisis of legitimacy. So that's my position. I see both a strategic and practical necessity of building a transnational movement that is necessary to transform the European Union. Now, I think we'll get into it later, what precisely I mean by transnational versus international. So I will sort of Long story short, argue there again that our positions are complementary and not actually in conflict, that transnationalism is in fact necessary. But the basic idea that I'd like to diffuse is the notion that the exit that we can all agree provides fantastic possibilities for socialist transformation in the context of Europe, of Europe today requires a deep and, and widespread mobilization of workers to demand the European Union. And as we have not done that yet, we simply cannot say what is possible and what is not possible. Anyway, thank you.
Sorry, Katarina. It says, it says you like. You can do it there. Oh, you can. Oh, I don't know. Uh, okay. <laughs> I'll just do it here then. Um, uh, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit, uh, I don't know how, where to start because actually David sort of, uh, you know, took the cards and dealt them again. I had, uh, I had prepared um, uh, something a little bit different, but I guess I'll say something from what I've prepared and something that comes already in the, in the discussion. I think it might be useful. Um, and what I, what I had prepared to say um, was a little bit to talk about when we talk about the, the, the nature of the European Union. Is it's not only to say, it's not enough, in my opinion, to say that it's only neoliberal. What does that exactly mean in terms of how we develop a left-wing strategy to get rid of uh, austerity, if we want, and austerity as it is embodied and imposed both by the European Union? And, and I think what is, what is important when we are talking about this is that um, we talk about European Union normally or exclusively as a transnational phenomenon. And so it's a transnational block that was built. It was a mercant mercantile, is this how you say it in English? A mercantile uh, agroupment um, that was built in order to be able to compete with other big um, hegemonic economic powers in the world. But the particularity of this agroupment or reagroupment is that it's not, it's not a, a, a single block. It's a block that is composed by nation states. And these nation states that compose this block that is supposed to be unified are actually in economic competition also with one another. And this is what makes the, the European uh, Union and the solutions to the crisis a very difficult one. Not only in terms of uh, how we analyze it, but also in terms of how we build plausible strategies uh, for... Um, for uh, any sort of anti-austerity or even socialist policies in this context. And, and there's another particularity I want to enforce here, and, and Portugal is an interesting case uh, when we talk about this, is that the European Union is not only an economic bloc, it's also a political bloc. And it's a political bloc that enforces states to transform not only economically, but also politically and legislative, legislatively, <laughs> uh, their structure and their organization in order to be a part of this club. And this is a very important thing because what it ends up creating is a sort of um, political statement where you cannot, within this agroupment, go neither one way nor the other. Portugal is an interesting case uh, to reflect upon this because we had a revolution in 74 and 75, a socialist revolution. In 76, there was a new constitution, which uh, the, the first phrase of this constitution was, Portugal is a country on its way to socialism. And three or four years later, the processes of uh, integrating the European Union started in Portugal. And it's interesting to see there's debates in Portugal about this, where some of the leading, let's say, liberal and social democratic and liberal economists at the time were against it. But the prime, the, the prime minister, Mario Suárez, was the big uh, figure of, of this process. Um, 
wanted to implement the, the, the process of European integration. And he answered to this economist, although they were against it, because they could see that a process of integration for a small peripheral country, what it would mean economically to Portugal would be, uh, a, because we had a country, sorry, parenthesis, with very low capital, um, that was very dependent on the markets of the colonies, and then with the decolonization process, this was over. So uh, the main reason for a prime minister to follow this process was, as he said at the time, a political one. So in order to build a liberal democratic uh, uh, country that would not be um, threatened by the communist threat, as it was called in Portugal, we needed to be part of this process. So the, the European Union is also this political reagroupment. It's not only economic. Although what it has meant economically for the periphery, Greece is a good example, Portugal is also a good example, is an over-dependency on the core countries of the European Union. So what 40 years of European integration almost for Portugal have meant, well, 33 actually, but if you, whatever, count a little bit some years before, it has meant the dismantlement of our productive sectors, it has meant uh, a, a, a substitution of uh, actual labor by credit that then produces debt crisis like we had, and uh, that's why we had, we had to uh, call the Troika in 2011, and all of this. And it has meant a restructuring of the state itself. And uh, this restructuring of the state is, uh, it, it's not a small thing. It's something that is important because democracy, and David was talking about democracy, and this is uh, where I think we might, it's not that I fully disagree with what he, he was saying, but I think we have to talk about democracy in a different way. We cannot talk about democracy just as the capacity of voting. We have to talk about democracy as the basic conditions that we must have in order to make those decisions. So democracy is a very practical and it's a very material question. Democracy is about having the capability and the accessibility to a social state that functions. The capacity of deciding upon uh, the economic priorities of a country. Uh, the capacity of uh, having the basic needs fulfilled, the capacity of having jobs. And so this is what, when we talk about democracy, we, I think we have to link it to a political program. And so we can, I don't think we can talk about democracy disconnecting it from what we are proposing. And in that sense, um, I think that uh, there are no easy solutions to the crisis that we find ourselves in. And I think the, the, the proposals that we need to repoliticize this debate, which means we need that in each country, and I do think that nation states, because precisely of this dual or double constitution, or the double framework of the European Union as such, so a transnational bloc that is composed by competing nation states. And because the states are still the only space where democracy is embedded in its structure, so they all, democracy in this sense only exists at the national and the subnational level, because all the transnational, sorry, bullshit of the European Union, it only answers upwards. There's only accountability upwards. The European Parliament only answers to the Council, for example. 
Um, so when we're talking about material democracy, then we need to rescue it where it exists, and it only exists at the level of the nation state. And um, in order to do that, we need to repoliticize this debate. It's not enough to talk about democracy. It's not enough to talk about disobedience. We have to have a political program that backs what we're saying. And in that sense, I, need, I think we need to go back to the basic things that allow for a country um, and eventually all the peoples of Europe, whatever form they find to uh, organize themselves together, uh, what is absolutely necessary for them to regain some sort of control and regain, regain a saying in, in their lives. And so we need clear strategic goals like we need to renationalize our uh, uh, main, um, sorry, economic uh, um, industries or whatever you want to call it. We need to renationalize. The, the, uh, like in Portugal, for example, the, the, the trains and the energy and, uh, and uh, the, the airline company. We need a, a public banking sector and a public banking system. We probably will need, and I think this is, this is not a question for Britain, but for the southern periphery, we need a proper currency. Because that's the only way, because the euro is immune to electoral pressures. It was designed to be immune from electoral pressures. So we need to regain some sort of popular sovereignty and capacity to make these decisions. And this only happens at the level of the nation state. Does that mean, and so that's I think how we repoliticize this debate. Does that mean that we forget that we live in a highly internationalized or transnationalized world. No. But if we look at the last years, and Greece is a good example for this, in my opinion. What happened in Greece is not only about what happened in Greece, but it was about the inspiration and solidarity experiences that it sparked all over Europe. Not only when Syriza was uh, gaining ground in Greece, for example, in Spain, Podemos was winning in the polls, but also we could see uh, different kinds of solidarity movements with the Greek people sparkling all, all over Europe. So this is what I believe, this is how international coordination is done, is the understanding that when things shift in one place, they might shift at another. And by this inspirational um, uh, grassroots sort of organizations that are not putting our hopes in transnational abstract ideas of coordination. This is how I think we advance socialist policies in a very complex situation as the one that we have today. Um, you have thrown a bit of a spanner in the works, David, sorry. So I'm just trying to sort of reformulate what I was going to say based to try to engage with some of what you, with what you raised. Um, and also to, to engage with what you've just said, Katerina. Um, I want to talk a bit about the political side of the state restructuring that you were, you were talking about. What's at stake with the EU and what's at stake with... Um, leaving or trying to stay in reform. But first, I, I don't know whether we'd skipped over something. How many people in the room think the EU is a good thing? Please raise your hands. 
You can't hear. Is that better? It is on, yeah. Um, how many of you think the EU is a good thing? Raise your hands. Don't be shy. For the sake of people following online, that's about, what is that, about 10 people in the room? How many of you think it could be reformed to make it good? Okay. So you're okay. About the same number again. <laughs> are you the same people if you just raise your hands? Then? Okay. So, I mean, your starting assumptions are not wrong then. So, you know your audience. Um, so, maybe I don't need to make the argument then as to why the EU is, a, is not a forum for left solidarity. In fact, it's destructive of left solidarity. Maybe I don't need to make that argument at all. Maybe I just focus on where the political class has gone over the last 40 years. Part of this state restructuring, the organization of the, uh, of the EU as a political structure is the retreat of political establishments from ordinary voters, expressed in mass disengagement from politics, the sense that it doesn't matter who you vote for because they're all the same, and a profound sense of abandonment by the political class and a sense that ordinary people, ordinary working people's interests are not being represented in the political system. That's generalized across Europe. It's not specific to the, to the UK. There are also different trajectories. So some people, you know, some countries escaping from fascism, they see it as a way of kind of locking in democracy or avoiding communism or whatever. So the trajectories are very different. Um, but the left in general has thro also thrown its lot in with the EU. And I think here we need to understand that this is not about affection for the European Union. So I don't agree with David there. I don't agree that if you look at opinion polls, you read that people like the EU. That's not the case. I think what's going on here is, a, is two different things. One is that uh, there's a profound sense that there is no alternative. The, the, the dominant emotion that rules the continent of Europe is fear. It's a fear of change. It's a fear that things can only get worse in an inversion of the slogan that, uh, and the song that boosted Tony Blair to power in 1997. Things can only get worse if you change them. And there's a left version of that, there's a left version of Tina, which is, well, we'll only have our rights taken away from us if we leave the EU. It's only that transnational lock-in that prevents the right triumphing. And there's a sacralization of the European Union as well, a belief that uh, the EU constitutes at least a sense of some solidarity, some good things in the world. Freedom of movement, that's good, isn't it? It means people can move around and, you know, I can go on a holiday and we can do Erasmus and stuff like this. And isn't it a force for human rights in the world? So these, the, the left has really thrown its lot in, I think, ideologically with the European Union. And so have political parties from across the political spectrum. What's going on there is a flight from the nation. It's a flight from ordinary voters. It's a flight from us. So all of our hopes and dreams about a peaceful future, about future cooperation, are all projected onto this incredibly undemocratic, neoliberal set of institutions that take power away from ordinary people. What is at stake in exiting from this structure is bringing those people back down to earth. It's about restoring accountability to ordinary people among the political establishment, which they are kicking and screaming and fighting to try to avoid doing. Because they have been hollowed out. They've been infantilized after 40 years of these 
transnational elite policy networks, they've lost the art of thinking for themselves. They've lost the art of creative thinking. They've lost the art of setting out a vision and leading populations towards it. And that is particularly true on the left. Because if the left's, future, the left's vision of the future is just clinging to a crumbling neoliberal edifice, that is a tragic condemnation of the state of the contemporary left. The way the left has recoiled from the vote to leave the European Union is very telling. The left looks today, the institutional left looks today at the working class and it sees not the agents of history, not the object of politics as in traditional left thinking, but a bunch of unreconstructed xenophobes and racists. The very idea that you could reform the European Union or at least demonstrate to people its unreformability by scaling up the gilet jaune seems to me to be completely uh, on a different planet. How do you think that these people who look at the Brexit vote as just uh, a 1930s Weimar Britain uh, fascism back on the streets, how do you think they would look at this, the scaling up of the gilet jaune? This is, so from their perspective, you would have to tear apart Europe in a mindless urban jacquerie the far right would have taken over. These people would retreat and they would, they would fall back on any form of authoritarianism to prevent that happening. Look at the way that the centre is rallying to Macron in his repressive uh, approach to these protesters. The truth is that the, the left has helped to create this situation by throwing its lot in with a transnational institution instead of sticking with the people that it is meant to represent. And so it clings to the European Union like a, a drowning man clinging to a life raft made of lead. Another Europe is possible, but another European Union is not possible. It seems to me that what you said, David, was, if I followed you correctly, is we need uh, urban jacquerie across the entire continent to prove that the European Union is not reformable. Um, Surely people are capable of coming to that realisation without uh, tearing the continent apart and giving more space to right-wing populism, which precisely flourishes in the gap between the people ignored and abandoned by the left and uh, the ruling class and the political establishment. <laughs> the EU cannot be reformed. This is not an opinion. It's just look at the treaties. Treaties do not allow the European Union to be reformed. It requires a majority of member states to put forward proposals for reform. So you can't just have one socialist government or two or three. You need 15 socialist governments to put forward reform proposals. It then goes into a constitutional convention that the president of the European Council can decide who's on that. They can stuff it with people who are not interested in reform. And then they have to come to a consensus, which then dilutes reform proposals then uh, that has to be ratified by every single member state. This is a constitutional order that is designed to be insulated from dem democratic control. One does not have to have urban jacquerie in every capital on the continent to see this. You can just merely go to the Lisbon Treaty and you can see for yourself. Every intelligent person can see for themselves. So what's to be done? The answer is a return to the nation. 
the left, if it's going to lead transformation anywhere in Europe, has to go back to the nation. Not because we're nationalists or xenophobes or racists or we don't like Europe or we don't want to cooperate with our European brethren, but for purely pragmatic reasons, for reasons that Katarina spoke of, that it, they, the nation state, whatever its faults, and they are many, and however degraded these may be, still has the institutions of representative democracy. It is possible, it was always possible to democratize the state to an extent, simply because democracy existed. You could just widen the franchise. The constitutional order of the EU is something very different, as Katarina has, has mentioned. If Europe was a continent-wide democracy where we elected our rulers freely and we didn't work through all these complex institutions, sign me up. I hold no particular candle for the British state at all. But these states are the only institutions, the only ones, that historically the working class has been able to exercise any power and leverage through. In my day job, I study things like global governance and transnational institutions. There is not one that I have come across where the workers exercise any real dominance. The, partial ex the only partial exception is the International Labour Organization, which was established only to counter the threat of communist revolution in Russia. Every other one is dominated by representatives of the state, transnational bureaucracies, big business, and a few middle-class NGOs. If we want to empower the working classes, we have to go back to institutions where they are able to exert power. And if the left wants to exercise power and it wants to establish genuine left internationalism today, it has to go back to the people. It cannot keep viewing them with disdain as potential fascists who require taming by international organizations. It has to go back to the people and win them round again to progressive ideals. And slowly, and it will be a slow and painful process because the hollowing out has gone very deep, reconstitute the forces that once allowed the left to rule. All right, I've got Urban Jacquery going over and over in my head now, but I'm not gonna ask you, <laughs> that's not where we're going now. Um, right, so I think all three of you in different ways mentioned coordination problem, right? And you can see that from a, a pro-exit position, which is that the EU is irreformable because you cannot get progressive governments elected in various places at the same time. But I also want to put that in a different way, that there's another coordination problem. Uh, Katarina mentioned uh, that, you know, something happens in one member state that has impacts on others. But, and you were speaking of that in terms of a positive example, but I want you to consider the effect of a negative example, that unilateral exit and the economic fallout of that and the EU's attempt to make it a negative example will actually have an effect on, on European, uh, European populace, that European peoples in various nation states will think this is, this is not a, a way out. And so maybe you can address that. What is, what is the effect of the negative example of unilateral exit? Yeah. Um. <laughs> As all complex um, questions, they should be answered by it depends in the beginning. <laughs> uh, but, but, but truly, because, um, I mean, Greece is a negative example in many ways. Greece didn't exit, but Greece was a negative example. Uh, 
It's the example of a left-wing party that came into power on the grounds of an anti-austerity program that got completely smashed down by the European institutions. And they accepted it, okay? It's not, they, they could have not accepted it, and I think that was the, the, the wrong choice. But what happened was, in a way, a negative example, is that when you actually have left-wing anti-austerity, anti-neoliberal movements that actually win power, the pressure on them is so huge that it was, Greece was said to be a disciplinary example of how you cannot stand up to the European Union. And so my answer is it depends because the reactions and the outcomes of the, Greece, of the Greek experience are not only negative. They did open a political debate uh, within uh, other countries within the European Union as we had not had before. So, uh, for example, in Portugal, the possibility, because Portugal found, found itself in a similar position, because we also were under uh, a memorandum at the time of the Troika, um, the possibility for the left to openly and vocally say, no more sacrifices for the euro. We will leave if we're not allowed to apply anti-austerity measures, the fundamental measures that we want to apply, even if it was only a little bit rhetoric, rhetorical. This political space that Greece allowed to open um, was a positive one. But it only happened because there were left-wing forces on the ground and in different places that were able to see this opening of this space and take it up and take it up and use it. So um, that's why I say it depends. I think Brexit is complicating this debate for all of us. All this very difficult process of what, it of what Brexit has been and the feeling of impossibility that people feel like. If, if in Portugal, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about Portugal because I think that's also why I was invited to, for this panel to give sort of a little bit of a periphery perspective. Like a small, tiny, unimportant country like Portugal, although important in some things, maybe we can go back to it later, because it, it was, Portugal was also set if Greece was set as a disciplinary example, Portugal was set as a, the example of the example of what you should do concerning austerity. So if you behave, you know, good boy, if you behave, then we will get you some help and you won't have to ask for a second bailout. And this is a very important thing that happened uh, in the last years. But maybe we can go back to this later just to finish what Alex asked me. Um, which I forgot now, what I was going to <laughs> the say. Negative, the negative example of, of Brexit. Um, so, uh, the, 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 so for a small country like Portugal, that is not a big country, that doesn't have its own currency, for the people who thought, okay, maybe we can leave and this is possible and it's, you know, it's a process that can be, do, it's doable. What is happening with the Brexit uh, uh, process opens a lot of questions for people, of course. But anyway, my answer to that question is it depends because it depends on the relation of forces that a left-wing organization has in each place to, to take up a certain political moment and try to transform it for its own benefit. Uh, I know, David, you guys are bubbling Just up to, to respond to that. You're itching. Okay, yes. okay, okay, go, 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 go. David first. Yeah, okay. Well, uh, 
I have many things to say. I too have Jacquerie in, in, in my head. I guess, you know, what I, I want to begin by emphasizing the, one of the points that I tried to make and kept saying sort of under my breath, which is that we simply have not tried, have not put together the kind of transnational mobilization that would, would be required to reform the EU. Now, Lee has laid out very eloquently the obstacles to that transformation. But I, I find the, the veneration of the nation that Lee's putting forward, and no matter how many caveats he gives me about how it's not nationalist, the whole point is that the nation state is this glorious institution, utterly puzzling, utterly ahistorical. We once, we still have a monarchy in this country. There was a moment in time when people looked around and said, fuck it, there's no way we're gonna beat this monarchy. There's no way we're gonna democratize this country. And just in the same way that those institutions of the monarchy led the, before the creation of, a, of an English demos and the state formation produced that demos, and that demos eventually led to the democratization of those very same institutions. I personally see no reason why the European Union does not present that exact same case. So pointing to me the institutional obstacles that are set forward for a democratic movement, which we've never had, which in 2015 you may recall that no one stood by Greece, no one stood by Syriza as they got battered in the Eurogroup, battered by the commission, battered by the Troika, no one. They were coward. Now, I get that that's built into the infrastructure of the European Union. My point is that we have never simply tried this experiment. Now, Lee, may, you may tell us again that it's not worth trying, and I stand in support with my Brexit brethren and sistren to say, fuck it, let's go whole hog on this. But Lee has not answered the question of what we do with the rest of Europe. Where do we, what does that leave with the Germans and the French? I find it very, very telling that you would damn the urban Jacquerie for inviting the radical right when your boy Nigel Farage is one of the leading voices on Brexit marching down to London at this very moment. Not my boy. <laughs> but Brexit, at the, Brexit, all of these moments of rupture, to use Mr. Lapavica's famous phrase, invite forces of good and forces of evil to their, to their side. I, you know, you may accuse me of being an idealist, but I'm trying to read this history forward. I'm trying to understand how democracy in these sacred institutions of working class power that we have since enshrined in only the last 150 years in this thing called the nation state cannot be repurposed on a transnational level. I get that, and you were very glib about the ILO, I don't think we should be, it's an important case study. But my point is, when it comes to, you know, what these unilateral things, unilateral, I, I'm very confident, I'm very hopeful about what these unilateral exits can do. I don't celebrate what the European Union is doing to Britain, this kind of awful, you know, you know sense of we're going to punish you for what you're doing. But my point is precisely that there has to be an answer to the rest of Europe, you know, and, and the periphery. These zones that are being waterboarded like hell, um, th th there has to be an answer to what, how the rest of, the, of Europe is going to respond solidaristically. Lee, um, David did mention earlier in his introductory remarks the Gilets Jaunes. There were protests, Gilets Jaunes style protests, in Belgium and in Italy. Uh, so a European demos is there to be created, is it not? And yes, it, it's not 
the working class is not inserted into European institutions in the way that it might be to a certain extent at the nation state level. But is this not an opportunity for left leadership on a transnational basis, even if not inserted it at the level of European institutions? Is this not a moment for the creation of a European demos? No. All right, we're done here. <laughs> Um, I really feel like this uh, continued focus on the EU is a continuation of the problem that I mentioned earlier on. It's the flight from the nation. It's the idea that um, it's the idea that we can just throw our weight at this transnational institution and and what I mean. The the point of strategy is that we're supposed to think about where we are, where we want to get to and then have some plausible mechanisms in between that links the two things, right? So I would like to, you know, when you say, is it possible, not possible? Well, you know, I've laid out the reasons why it's not possible, which is institutionally, it's designed to be impossible. But what's the, what is the reasonable mechanism? I mean, if you read um, European Springs Manifesto, I mean, it's all very eloquent about the, the problems and the flaws of the EU. But in terms of the mechanisms by which it's supposed to be transformed, it's, oh, we just need to protest against it and uh, say no to the EU, and then somehow some concessions will magically erupt. And I just, don't, I just don't see it. I mean, how long would it take to try to constitute a European demos that does not exist? Currently, it does not exist. Um, politics in Europe is still profoundly national. People predominantly identify with the nation state. They don't identify with Europe. The only people who identify with the European Union. 68% of Europeans identify with the European Union, they, the highest in history. They don't identify with it. They may have a favorable opinion of it. No, they identify as Europeans. Down. They may identify with, as, with the continent of Europe. I identify with the continent of Europe. My values are the, are the values that were developed during the Enlightenment. And those, those are values that should, should, should bind us all together. One of the greatest scandals of the European Union is the way that it has... Um, elided. The way that it, exactly, thank you. It has sure. elided all of these great values and sucked them into this undemocratic institution that violates so many core European values. And we must distinguish between feeling European and loving the European Union. If we have to wait for the constitution of European demos to reform the EU, I think we'll be waiting a very long time. Even at the level of the European Parliament, people elect national um, political parties and then they agglomerate together in these various groups, with the exception of your political party, right? <laughs> Which we will see. <laughs> yeah? The proof will be in the pudding. If 68% of people really identify with the EU and really want to elect this um, transnational party, we will see. Uh, we won't have to wait very long. Um, my prediction is that, unfortunately, you will do very poorly. Um, so we don't have to wait very long. I just want to say one thing about um, the negative example, right? So you have to remember that although you scoff at rupture, I mean, rupture is the left's business, yeah? You know, historically, the radical left has been all about revolution, seizing control of the means of production. I mean, that's going to create some disruption to the economy, right? Some economic costs. It's going to disrupt some just-in-time production networks. When did the left become so concerned about just-in-time production networks? Um, the, the key thing is that people will tolerate economic disruption if the price is worth it. 
And so the key is to offer them a genuinely transformative vision, not hold out some vague prospect that if you go rising on the streets every Saturday, the EU might be democratized through some vague mechanism in the future, but the transformation of their own lives, their conditions of existence. If you offer them that, they will tolerate hardship in order to get there. And the proof of this is even in the absence of any real transformative vision, the people of this country voted to leave the EU because they, they thought that it was worth the risk to try to restore democratic accountability in this country. And they were right. One last question. Okay, I'm going to bring Katarina in as well. But get your questions ready because I'm coming out to, the, to you guys in just a second. Uh, I'm going to ask a question to David, but then I'm going to let Katarina speak just at the end before we take some first round of questions. You might say, David, that people identify with the EU, identify as Europeans, support the EU, in some cases support the Euro, in some cases, like in Italy, support the Euro more than they do the EU. It's, there's also contradictory attitudes, but, they can, but we can tell the way the wind is blowing. The dynamism is all on the populist right, which is perhaps not pushing explicitly for exit, but is certainly pushing a lot harder against the constraints of the EU than much of the left is doing. So is this not the, does this not show us that we need left leadership in this case, otherwise the right continues to steal the left's rebellious clothes? Oh, I'm, I, I, absolutely. Now I do think, I, I think it's very, you know, it, let me just say unequivocally, I've said enough already. Yes, the left, is, left has failed tremendously and we need to reclaim exactly that, that spirit. I mean, I think what Lee said, what both of you said, about the way that the institutions of the European Union are designed to, de to prevent solidarity, as we saw in 2015, by telling Port Portugal to be the good boy or else become Greece. And in the same way, it promotes a kind of competition between countries that undermines that solidarity. I completely agree with that. Uh, but I, think the, I do think that the wind is not blowing towards exit. Now, I don't think that we should just go the way the wind blows. I agree with you. It's our responsibility as the left to make the bold and courageous case. But I, I, to, to, to put this all together, I want to return to my core argument that I made up front, uh, regardless of how red in the face I became as Lee was speaking. I genuinely believe that if our, our core goal is rupture, is the destruction of the European Union as it exists today, the only way to do that is collectively. I do not think, I think that if the unilateral case of Brexit uh, the, and the painful negative case of Brexit teaches us one thing, it's that the only way that we're going to have successful, productive, exciting exits is if all the people, if the entire European demos, which I insist already exists, will stand together and support each individual country if it chooses democratically to exit. Katarina, last word before. Uh, okay. Um... Just a couple of things. Uh, one little thing about the state. Uh, maybe just to uh, engage in this discussion again. Uh, I don't think it's, I mean, I don't think it's, it's the left that is sanctified. Oh, how do you say, how did you use the term, like, um, making the state again the, the big thing and the only solution? Actually, what I think is happening, and that's how I think we must look at neoliberalism, is that the state is the new, and not really new, but the new adjustment variable. So if you look at all the Troika, all the memorandum programs, what they did, what was their main goal, was to transform the state, was to end the social welfare state, and to make the state play not, not, a, not a, an invisible role, but another role. The state is more important today 
than it ever was in many ways, but just not how we, we, we imagined it for the 50 golden years of the welfare state. The state today is the one that passes law that liberalizes the labor market. It's the state that takes up the private banking, failed, that bails out all the banks and transforms their debt into public debt and forces their citizens to pay for the collapse of the banking system. This is the state today. So the adjustment of the state is actually how neoliberalism plays out in Europe. So it's not only the left that is making the state their primary focus in a way of, uh, of, of their strategic thinking. This happens because uh, capitalism has always used the state in order to organize capital, but is doing, to, is doing it today in a sort of really harsh way that's undermining all the, uh, the victories that the working class has managed to crystallize in the form of the welfare state which are always, always relative. I don't think the state as it exists today will be the solution for all our problems, but it is a, 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 the terrain of struggle because they are, in, they are imposing us a new type of state. So it is the terrain of struggle. And just for two, two things, um, the, the idea of European identity. It's very funny if you look in the periphery, and I think in Greece this happens as well. In Portugal, we, we listen to this very often. People talk about there in Europe. There in Europe. They decide there in Europe. So for the periphery, this idea of Euro European um, identity. Europe, Europe is one thing, but this idea of European identity as integrated in the European Union, it's, it's a very complicated issue. And I don't think we can say that 68% of the people do agree with this. I also think that the idea that we all now come together and suddenly we make like clap and we all change. That's, I mean, look, David, I wish, but as we know, in all processes of struggle and conflict, we will have uneven and contradictory developments. So unfortunately, I don't think we can predict in, in, in a transnational bloc that is composed by different and competing nation states with uneven and, develop and, 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 and uh, combined development phases of their own capitals that we can produce a moment in time where they suddenly all shift in the same direction. That's just, that's just not how struggle goes. And also, I don't think it is fair to say that this is the first attempt of a transnational mobilization. Because what, how do you then read what happened? Because I was a part of that. How do you read the European social forums? How do you read the, the, the movements of the people united against the Troika in 2012 and 13? How do you read the, the attempts of a multi-state general strike that happened in 2012? And how do you read, even, even if I don't agree with its political aims today, how do you read the existence of the party of the European left? I mean, there has been attempts of actual organizing, uh, and, and I mean, we've seen where they are today. Um, <laughs> All right, let's see hands. Who wants to ask a question? Do you have a roving mic or my, my... Okay, great. Uh, let's start up right up at the top. That's something interesting. <laughs> a very quick question followed up by a more substantive question. My very quick question was that I had it on good authority that before it joined the EEC, Portugal was the second fastest growing country in the world. And I just wondered if that was something people had also heard. Uh, 
Uh, I think that's very interesting because you look, the EEC in the EU does tend to slow growth down rather than accelerating it unless you're Eastern Bloc countries and you've been trapped in um, those systems. But my question is, it seems to me that there's a misunderstanding of what Brexit is. Um, obviously, you can see it as, as having patriotic and, 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 and aspiration, particularly English national aspiration for, for self-government. But it seems to me that the argument for leaving the EU is the same argument for having maximum devolution to Yorkshire or to Cornwall or devolving power from the centralizing Scottish nationalists in Scotland. This is about subsidiarity, not the fake subsidiarity of the Lisbon Treaty and the centralizing Euro-Federalists. The argument for Brexit is about democracy, primarily, but wrapped up in that, it's bringing power closer to the people. And I used to be a Labour councillor. It is almost pointless. You have no power to do anything for the people you represent. And I could go on long about that, but you need to devolve right down to your local council, right down to your local government. And that is why these transnational, I mean, the EU is a model for, for a wider thing. It's a, it's a model to have the same thing in the, you know, it's this globalist thing that they want. They want a similar thing going on in Latin America, and then they all team up and you get this one world government and we all join hands. It, it, it has that kind of utopian leftist aspect to it, kind of combined with capitalism. But it's about devolving power down as close as possible to the individual and to the local community, including trade unions, civic organizations, etc. All right, so, thanks. Sorry, sorry, not a question. More of a... Uh, yeah, just pass the mic over and then we'll come over to this side here. Uh, yeah, hi. Um, what's wrong with the populists? I mean, they're pretty dynamic. Um, they're Democrats, at least, which is more than can be said for about 80% of the left. I mean, we're pretty weird here on the left, believing in democracy. People, you know, look at you like you've uh, strangled a cat when you say that I think that, you know, ordinary people should have the same say in politics as, um, as you should or a doctor should. So, yeah, what, and that's kind of what the populists are arguing, on some level at least. So what's wrong with them? Could you, no, if you wouldn't mind coming round to this side here. Good evening. Oh, I didn't realize it was the Down here, the woman in black, I think had your hand up. Yes? No? Didn't? This is, this is your moment. Um, thanks. Um, okay, so I agree with the panel that the so-called um, working class people who voted for Brexit are not racist as we have understood it in the sort of post-civil rights movement of explicitly stated hatred. <coughs> Sorry, can you not hear me? Can you hear me? Should I start that again? Yeah? Um, okay, I've written this down so it seems quite contrived now. Um, <laughs> um, so I agree with the panel that the so-called working class people who voted for Brexit are not racist as we have understood this in the post-civil rights movement, explicitly stated hatred of people of colour and people of difference. Um, however, when we talk so emphatically about a return to the nation, um, as a group of people who are on the left and believe in a project of solidarity, um, do we not need to acknowledge the racial capitalism that supported the development and success of strong social democracies, Western democracies, um, and begin to talk about what 
international solidarity might look like. I think maybe I was a bit confused about what was going to come out of this evening with the internationalism, uh, transnationalism thing. I thought that part of this discourse might be around what a, um, what a solidarity that was counter to those populist narratives rather than encouraging of them could look like, look like while still opposing the European Union. Um, yeah, that's, that's that. Thanks. Okay, I'm going to bring the panel back. I'm going to bring the panel back now. Um, but we basically have, you know, bringing democracy closer to people, and that's what Brexit is. Two, populists are actually all right because they're Democrats. And three, uh, we haven't been talking about what we were meant to be talking about, and you're rightly correcting us. Uh, internationalism or transnationalism, what does internationalism look like in the 21st century in Europe? Uh, let's go. Uh, no one wants now. No one wants to talk. All right, let's go. Let's go. I prepared something on this. So, um, so I think the, the first and third questions, uh, and the second question, I think they're, they are, are related in an important way, which is that you know, I, I actually I, I am curious to know a bit more from the organizers what you thought had in mind when you pitted together this internationalist versus transnationalist because. Well, again, my sense is that uh, that these things are are deeply complementary. That you cannot, you know. So we, let's talk about devolution. So, as we're learn, as many people have made this case, but you know, substantive sovereignty requires more than just exit, right? It requires a lot of international coordination. I can't have personal sovereignty unless there are norms that allow me to move through the world freely and without fearing the violence of others. Similarly the strangling of municipal England, right? Municipal sovereignty is meaningless in, unless there are national laws that permit it, right? And we know that national sovereignty, exactly the same way, is only meaningful in the context of an international uh, coordination effort that provides the means to which that country will not be violently invaded, nor will it be at risk of the capital flight that comes along with this. Now, we take it as our project as transnationalists precisely to initiate to, to, to sort of um, ignite the imagination around what the toolbox is. You know, for example, a democracy stabilization fund. The IMF has used stabilization funds to extract tons of neoliberal reforms from countries like Brazil, like in 2002, asking Lula, even before he was elected, to promise when he was elected, you know, to, to initiate these structural adjustment reforms. You can imagine precisely a group of nations getting together in a substantive solidaristic way and saying, we're going to provide a bunch of money to stabilize around election time and guarantee these elections so that there's no, no risk of capital flight can affect the turbulence in, the, in money markets around those elections, right? That's, to me, the definition of substantive solidarity. I turn to my panelists in this case, which is sort of like, yeah, by all means, exit. But what exactly is the toolbox post-exit in the absence of international, transnational institutions, which I think, Lee, you have a, sort of damned with one great sort of breath, breath of fire, you know, how do you instantiate uh, a, a, a meaningful internationalism in the absence of those institutions? How do you devolve? How do you, how do you really make democracy meaningful in the absence of transnational institutions? And, if, and, and, and what are they? And I, find, I mean, I'm curious how we fill in that toolbox in, in a post-Brexit Britain. Good. Um, Lee, as you were addressed directly. Sorry. No, I don't mind at all. Um, I mean, I very much agree with, with much of what you said. Um, the, you know, the, the, and this is the sense in which I'm not fetishizing the nation state. Yeah. 
I'm not saying that we, what we want is strong centralized states, not at all. The principle at stake here is popular sovereignty. And that does mean subsidiarity, real subsidiarity. In other words, you devolve power down to the lowest level at which it can be uh, rationally exercised, right? So that means, you know, workers control over workplaces. It means empowering local neighborhood parish councils to manage their areas. It means creating regional investment banks where capital is locked into particular um, places and so on that are under democratic popular control and so on and so on. And you, you only aggregate power um, upwards with democratic sanction um, and if it's absolutely necessary. And there are some things that would indeed require uh, international coordination. So, for, for, so I think that principle that you would need both downwards and upwards uh, coordination and so on is, is not wrong. The question before us, though, is a question about strategy and sequencing. So I suppose the big difference between us is not what kind of outcome we would desire, because it's more or less the same, I think. The question is, what's more likely to get us there? And here, you know, I just, I, it's a bit hackneyed and cliched, but I would fall back on the Communist Manifesto, which was very clear that although capitalism was definitely a global phenomenon, all that stuff about, you know, capital chasing over the surface of the world and battering down Chinese walls and so on, Marx and Engels were very, very clear that um, each national proletariat, each national proletariat, yes, had to set up each other out had to settle scores with its own bourgeoisie first. That the proletariat had to constitute itself as the ruling class of the nation. And only then would it be able to practice true internationalism. Until then, until the working class has taken over the state, there would be antagonism between the states. So the question of what about the rest of Europe is they must also go through this process. And the idea was that then, now the states are under popular control, then the antagonisms between the states would melt away because the, the cause of the antagonism was gone. So they were very clear that you had to win the battle of democracy first. And so this is a question of sequencing, I think, tactically and strategically, for me at least. Just a little point here, which you can address later on, but do not underestimate the degree of interrelation between states and integration, actual functional integration between nation states to the extent that perhaps popular forces need to follow capital in that direction, that mm -hmm. capital has already made it global and or, you know, let's say European for the purposes of this debate, and that, you know, the left should act at a European level as well and shouldn't retreat from capital or from the, from the scale at which capital operates. But I'm, that's just a point. I'm just saying this. No, 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 no. You, you'll, you'll speak later. Katarina. You can be oh, all no. the time. Katarina. Oh, no. This would be such I'm an joking, interesting thing. Um, so just, I don't know if it was actually a question or just a comment about Portugal uh, in the process of European integration. Uh, I mean, it depends on what you consider growth. Um, if, uh, I mean, of course, after, uh, I mean, Portugal was the long-lasting dictatorship or post-authoritarian or whatever you want to call it, post-fascist, soft-fascist state in Europe, were a very under, a highly underdeveloped economy, a very underdeveloped bourgeoisie, actually, very rentist, very statist, 
very uh, lazy, um, really still is. Um, it's true. Um, and of course, uh, with the opening of Portugal to the European market, uh, Portugal was flooded with uh, what we call structural funds in order to um, modernize and build all the infrastructure of the country, uh, which created, of course, new types of jobs. Uh, there was, there's actually an interest, I mean, there's, it's interesting to see what happened to the Portuguese bourgeoisie at that time, because some adapted and some not, and that's why also some of them were not in favor of European integration. Um, so the, also, it's, I think it's important sometimes to remember ourselves that the bourgeoisie is not a, like a uh, fully hegemonic bloc that always thinks the same, but there's also contradictions and conflicts within it. Um, so, so that's what, that's my answer to you is that, or my comment to this is that it depends on what you consider growth. Um, of course there was growth, especially if you compare to what existed before, but the question is, uh, what was the outcome of this growth? And what did we have to lose in order to have this type of growth and liberal integration? Um, and uh, what's wrong with populists? Uh, I, I'm not sure if I got your question, but I'm, I'm trying to go through it. I, I don't know if, um, but... Um, yeah, the, the populists are democratizing, that they are more democratic than anyone else on the scene today. Well, I, I'm not sure what populists we're talking about, um, <laughs> because there's also different populists. I mean, are we talking about um, uh, Salvini or are we talking about uh, Podemos, because they also consider themselves left populists. So I think it's also, it also depends. But my, my main opinion about this idea of um, uh, left populism is that it tries to simplify what are otherwise very complex questions and that it tries to give very simple answers to things that do have simple answers but are more complex than the simple answers that populists tendentially want to give. And, and so the problem is that it again depoliticizes um, struggle and political proposals. It does depoliticize politics. So when we talk about um, uh, the, 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 like, uh, Iglesias has this speech where he talks about the society of the mice and the rat. I mean, fine, it's, it's funny, it's nice. Sometimes it brings people together, but, I mean, it's, we're not done talking about left and right. We're not done talking about classes. We're not done talking about capital. And I think we need, we can arrange ways of talking about these things. The 99 against the 1%, it's also a populist slogan, but we need to, interlink it with the all sorts of types of traditional struggles and forms of organization. And I do think we need political parties because I do think that we need struggles at the level of the state that try to uh, win state power to, in order to transform it. Because as I've said before, and I think this makes sense to, uh, to what I've been saying before, uh, the terrain of struggle is still very much the nation state. And, and one thing, because I think your question is really interesting, and I don't think we can answer it only, although I appreciate it, uh, and, I, and I would like to discuss this idea of uh, this stagiest idea on internationalism, uh, because I, I, I agree with you, but at the same time, I think there's a level to which uh, some transformations at the nation state or the capacity of a certain proletariat to actually win state power depends on a conjunctural uh, dynamic 
that uh, cannot be just locked within the space of the nation. And I think, like for example, the the, the big debates between Germany and Russia explain uh, or uh, elucidate or give light to one of this uh, or are an example of this uh, dynamic. But but I think your question is interesting because it's 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 a it's a difficult one because it's like okay, so what are we doing today or what can we do today? And uh, I, I'm not sure I have very good answers to you. I think there are several attempts at this and that are beyond the struggles that left-wing parties or organizations or movements do at the level of the nation state because I think they also exist and I think they are very important. So I, I want to answer that internationalism, we, built the, we, we also built it from where we are. So it's a sort of like internal internationalism. Um, but I think that, um, I mean, if we go back to this example, when Greece was under the threat of the Troika in the negotiation moments in 2015, there were demonstrations all over Europe in support of the Greek people. I think this is a very interesting expression of solidarity and internationalism. It wasn't huge, but it did happen. I think there are some structures that could be helpful. Uh, the European Trade Union Confederation, all, with all its problems. I mean, why not? Why shouldn't we be discussing about how to try to influence it more. I, but I, we need struggles at the local, at the national level in order to win, win trade unions so that we can actually influence this sort of structure. Or, but for example, and, and I don't mean to sound very populist with this answer, but um, for example, the Dockers, which are uh, very good examples of sort of uh, international solidarity type of strikes. And I know it's a very specific uh, example, but in Portugal this year, for example, there was a big uh, wave, a strike wave of the dockers. And what it has meant in practice was that dockers all over Europe was, were striking in solidarity with the Portuguese dockers. And I, don't, and I think it's hard to organize this because this comes from years and years of organization. But, but I think these are examples of what actual solidarity and internationalism mean today, and that we shouldn't downgrade them. We should look at them and think how we can replicate them. Great. Uh, we're going to take another round of questions. Lots of them. Uh, yeah, let's just start right there, and then we'll move down. Oh, if you wouldn't mind, I think at the bottom of the mic, there's a button. A little red button to turn it on. Hello? Yeah, now it works. Um, thank you for the presentation. I had a quick question. Where does uh, Europe, uh, overseas Europe fit in, your, in the discussion? Because I've heard, I mean, I'm French, and I know that French has overseas territories, uh, the same with other countries. So I was just wondering where this does fit when you mention in internal internationalism transnationalism if you're taking into account obviously Europe. Thank you. Great, excellent. Uh, these guys up here were waiting for a while. Uh, oh, sorry, I've, I've made you go the wrong way. Up at the top, in the middle. It's <laughs> terrible mic direction on my part, sorry. Just listening to discussion of a European demos, it makes me wonder what you think a demos is. Because my understanding of a demos is that it's made up of citizens, all of whom have some common material goal or, or interest. Um, 
and they all have some role in the adjudication of their public life. Um, you know, I could launch a survey over Europe and ask how many people like jam, and some people might say yes. That wouldn't mean I have a European populace. Um, so I think you're confusing the notion of a demos with a group of people who happen to identify in a particular way. And it strikes me that that's a, quite a technocratic way of viewing citizenship and quite a sort of hollowed-out version of what it means to be a citizen. And so arguably, your conception of citizenship is just a flip-reverse, if you use the Blazon Squad language, of the EU's version of citizenship. It's kind of this really hollow, how do we manage the European public? Well, we appeal to this very narrow sense of what it means to be European. And actually, there might be um, something more fundamental to the question of being a citizen, which both you, your idea of the demos um, matches up with the EU's. All right, just mind you. Yeah, um, it, it strikes me there's a little bit of an air of unreality about some of this discussion. Um, David, you said, how, how can we make democracy meaningful in the absence of transnational institutions? But we're, you know, we're sitting here today in a country where a million people have signed a petition uh, asking, the, asking for the revoking of, of uh, the mechanism that allows us to leave a transnational uh, institution. So, the, the, you know, the struggle for democracy is right here and now and, and happening in front of us. And the, and the transnational institution is not the thing that's uh, in any way delivering it. I think uh, Lee's made a, a, an important defense of democracy at the level of the nation state. I, personally, I worry a little bit about when we talk about devolving it down even further and these, these sort of positive arguments that come out for local democracy, which, while they may have some merit, uh, unfortunately, I think in, in all, too, uh, all too often are a way of avoiding the importance of making the argument for the nation state itself. So I'd, I'd, I'd like someone to address that. Okay, let's see who else. Keep these snappier so we can get all of you in. Uh, where are we? Yeah, just down here in the aisle. I, I super, uh, Hello. Hi, I'm James Hartley. Hi. Um, I, I wonder on, I mean, you know, the, um, the language, um, uh, we need to talk about classes and uh, left and right and um, uh, um, capital and those things. But those, all those terminologies is the, the dead uh, language of a movement of the 1840s, um, uh, which we've lived under. And uh, I've, I've kind of wished that we could um, free ourselves in a way because the, um, you know, where people are making history now. It's actually happening now. And they're beginning to work out for themselves um, uh, how to talk about uh, um, uh, these problems they're confronted now. And um, I, I'm not sure that it's, it's really helping them to say, uh, can you, uh, would you pay attention please to the Communist Manifesto? Uh, um, because um, uh, uh, you know, the Communist Manifesto was written, uh, was it back then, uh, to try and summarise what was new and what was, was striking. I, mean, I think it seems very exciting to me right now, all these things are happening. So maybe we shouldn't be seeking to uh, uh, you know, make people bow down before the categories of the past and try and elicit in this, this current moment uh, what is the, uh, the poetry of the future. You know, we, we should be thinking about what the, um, uh, uh, how these movements, uh, which seem very exciting, where they're going to go, not how we can bang them into the received opinion of uh, uh, the past ages. All right, who else? Did you, someone else? Where are we? Where, where are we? Okay, down here, front of the middle, and then we're going to take some questions from 
people, people not present. They're not dead. They're just in different places and connecting virtually. Am I live? Sounds like that. Right, I'm just going to look around the room um, because, yeah, I suspect I'm one of about maybe three or four at the absolute most who were able to vote in the previous British referendum on the EU. Now, I want to make two points, one of which is a strategic one, and the other is a more theoretical and tactical one. And I'm going to try and get there by personal history. That's, that's the point about the 1975 referendum. Now, in 1975, I voted against the uh, membership of what was then the EEC on, on the same grounds as most British workers might have wanted to vote against it, which was that an organisation that promised cheap box wagons and dear food was not obviously in the interest of the British working class. In the 1990s, I was more sympathetic to Europe because of the law and the social charter mm. as you know, some, some kind of defence against Thatcherism. In, and then there was... Uh, Euro and Greece and you know, what it, you know, the, my original Euro, lifelong Euro scepticism revived. In 2015, I voted to remain somewhat reluctantly for two reasons. One is I'm a Labour Party member and that's the party line, and, which is not completely overwhelming motive, but the, what sealed the deal was that uh, Barry Farkas was recommending remain. My present position is that... Well, you have time to make your mind up. <laughs> <laughs> we've had the second referendum, right? It would be electorally suicidal, would have been electorally suicidal in 2017 for the Labour Party to go to have itself represented as the party of Remain and the party of Europe. And it's still... Electorally suicidal for us to be labelled that way. So, the current party position, of, uh, as at least advanced by Corbyn, of was essentially a kind of very soft Brexit, seems to be the you know, the best possible tactical option of a range of not very attractive options. Okay, and I understand, by the way, that that's Barry Farkas's current position. But what's the, what's the strategic thing you get out of it? Well, the problem is that you know, another Europe, well, actually, not, you know, it may or may not be possible. It's certainly conceivable, right? but is it possible? That's the question the panel is okay. to addressed. So that'll, that'll be, we'll take that. We'll take that as the question. Right? We'll take that as the question. Yeah. Um, is, it, is another Europe possible? Uh, we, we've got to get some other people in, so sorry to cut you off. Um, so, yeah, we've got two questions here from the live stream, both from people. Ben, so make that what you will. Um, firstly, we have uh, Ben Fogel. Uh, so he, <laughs> who's that guy? <laughs> who some of you might know. So he asks, um, what does this debate mean for people outside of Europe? Does it open up new possibilities in Africa or Latin America? What are the stakes outside of Europe? And we also have Ben Bradlow, who, who gives his address as Somerville, Massachusetts, evil Ooh. empire. Um, yeah. So. There you go. It's good um, to know where they live. Yeah. So he, um, he would like to hear the speakers discuss the probabilities here. Why do they think that their preferred strategic approach 
transnational movement building or nationalization is more realistic as opposed to more theoretically desirable. In other words, how realistic is it to imagine a path outside the EU? Excellent. Okay, so I'm just going to summarize those a little bit. We're going to go down the line sure. to give you a, a second to, to collect your answers. Uh, extra European Europe, what is the impact on that? And then also taking up the last one of the, the penultimate question, uh, what is the effect, what is the import of all this outside of Europe in the global south especially? Uh, what is a question about the sub a substantive demos, not just we all like jam or something? Um, uh, the struggle is here. It's not uh, transnational. And also a skepticism about local democracy that, you know, bringing democracy home, you know, how far do you want to bring that? Uh, Marxism is so 1840s. Um, that was the other one. Um, and uh, which, you know, and also which, which EU? Because you can look at different faces of it and look at some positive aspects, some negative aspects, and you end up having to choose the least worst option. Uh, so lots there. Let's just go down the line. David, first. Sure. I'll address the question. I'm going to address the questions that were mostly addressed to me, so I limit my, my speaking time. Just let's begin with this defense of the nation state. What, what a, just a strange and queer ahistorical idea. I mean, this is, a, this is an institution dripping in colonial blood. I'm from the United States of America. I mean, how do you defend that nation as a bastion of democracy? not only for its internal problems with, with voter suppression, but also the nation as this you know, imperial, land-grabbing, you know, genocidal institution. In my former life, before I was a transnationalist, I was a municipalist. I, used to, I worked most primarily in urban politics. And this is, and I, I still am a municipalist. And you know, in, in, in so far as the work that I do at Europe is precisely in fighting things like the Bolkestein Directive to get more democracy back to the local level, because there's no way that these cities on their own can can manage those democratic struggles without having an international framework that protects them. I mean, I don't I don't understand why we can. It just seems so strange that in 2019 we decided, you know what, we mastered it. That that nation state thing we created 150 years ago. It was the perfect scale for our, for our democratic struggle. So it's, it, it, just, it just strikes me as odd. To go to the demos question, there's a paradox here in people who accuse, who often say very glibly that there's no European demos. On the one hand, these are the same people who say, by golly, we are suffering under the same set of treaties, same set of problems, same austerian conditions all over Europe. And yet they say, oh, but no, they're all different people. I mean. They do have shared interests, the same institutional frameworks in which they're all battling, but there's no sense in which, those, it, which that qualifies as a demos. So I, I don't understand this because I, you know, a demos is endogenous to left politics. We create our own demos. When did, when did Manchester become a demos? When did England become a demos? When did Britain, is Britain a demos? I mean, the whole thing is very, very strange to me. And I think this goes back to the question of how you design a politics that is immune to xenophobia. How do you design a framework? I, I'm, gonna go, I'm gonna be worse than 1840s Marxism. I just, you know, as a humanist, as a part, you know, I think Lee was very glib about freedom of movement as the thing for people, you know, vacationing in Mallorca. But this is a claim that's, I think, foundational to making a transnational politics that is sufficiently humanistic. So. You know, to me, this notion of what qualifies as demos is so, um, it's in, in the same vein as the nation state defense, so, forgive me, so reactionary in terms of its 
looking, taking today as the, you know, petrified state of politics as it will always be. So here we come to the strategic question posed by my dear friend Ben Bradlow in Somerville, Massachusetts, which is, I just think that all of us here are right. Like we have to do all of this. We have, we, we, there's no choice that we have not to mobilize transnationally because as I've said before, there is no substantive democracy at, at the national level, certainly on the periphery of Europe, but definitely in developing countries outside of Europe if there is not transnational mobilization and a strong internationalist toolbox for protecting democracy at those levels. At the same time, making a very strong case at the, at the national level that, man, if it's in our interest, we gotta get out of this European Union to be strategic in order to build our own democracies. I think that's fantastic. Now, I also am empiricist about this. If Britain can succeed in this experiment of Brexit, if a Corbyn government can make this thing sing, how wonderful. Even the Germans may see the wisdom of exit and may throw their hands up and say, you know what, we did this all wrong. Let's walk away from this, from this European Union. But I think you know, it's going to take firing on all cylinders to make this thing called democracy work again or work for the first time. All right, uh, can you guys keep it brief? Because I think we want to go for one it last quick brief. round of questions. No, no, that was good, that was good. Yeah. But uh, one last round of questions as well, and then final, final, final summing up. So, yeah. Uh, so I just try to uh, address the, the, a lot of questions together, which relates to the question online about uh, why, is it, why is it realistic? And this is, I suppose, the whole hinge of what I'm trying to argue is about realism. And, you know, I'm not interested in making the case for the nation state really not. I don't think there's anything particularly special about the nation state. It didn't always exist. It won't always necessarily exist. Identification with it, you know, it's not a natural phenomenon. We can imagine beyond it, but we aren't there. That's my point about the European demos. We haven't created that demos, that imaginary community, but that the remnants of that still exist at the, at the national level. What interests me as a political economist who draws on political geography is question of scale. It, there are certain institutions and certain scales at which different forces have more or less leverage. So this goes back to your question, Alex, about why not, why doesn't Labour just follow capital up to the transnational level? Now we have to think historically about when did, when did the working class exercise leverage? Limited, but some. It was in the period when capital was caged nationally after World War II. There was a deliberate decision taken to um, euthanize the rentiers, as Keynes put it. In fact, they were only um, anesthetized, unfortunately. They were caged. And in that moment, the balance of forces then changed because capital was forced to negotiate with labor and make some concessions to labor. The uncaging of capital in the, in the late 1970s, early 1980s, was what destroyed the leverage of labor. Because labor really struggles to organize transnationally. They've tried, as Katerina mentioned, but it's really difficult to do. Transnational capital is, is very well organized inter internationally. Labor has not been able to do it. Labor is weak everywhere. Trade unions are weak everywhere. They can barely organize a strike locally let alone organized to fight transnational capital at the international level. So we have to think about the institutional planes on which we choose to fight our battles and the ones, and we have to structure politics in a way that is savvy politically, that maximizes the forces that we 
that maximizes the leverage of the forces um, that we are interested in. We cannot do everything. We can't because the left is at a historical low ebb. We have to be very strategic at this moment in time because if we throw our energies all into the wrong strategies, we'll just end up um, throwing it all up against the wall and we will have missed a historical opportunity. Um, uh, I'm not gonna, maybe then later. Um, I just would like to ask Lee if, if that's possible uh, for the last round. Uh, because I think it's it's uh, interesting the way you put it, like the, the caging and uncaging. But I would say that the, the particular and difficult part of it is that although there's an uncaging, capital still needs that cage. So that's, that's, the, that's the difficult part of it. Because if it, it wouldn't need the nation state, we wouldn't be having this discussion today. But it does need it. It still needs it. So I would like to, like, can but you... It, but what it needs is what you said, is the transnationalized state. It doesn't need the nation state. It needs the neoliberal state, which facilitates the international movement. But it's a certain type of state. Yes. And it still exists, and it's but still it's needed. Caged, so, okay. It's not the caged one of the post-war era. Oh, no, of course. You know, yeah. So if Corbyn came to power and he didn't impose capital controls, that's it. You could, you could kiss goodbye to his program. So the mm -hmm. disciplining of capital, using mm -hmm. the institutions yeah. that are available to you, is absolutely essential yeah. for the left program. Okay, so that's exactly why it's this is important still yeah. to talk about. Because no, the, the way that you put it, it seems like okay, now that it's transnationalized, then the cage doesn't matter anymore. It does. It that's exactly why it does. I just wanted to add this. And this, um, uh, okay, just one thing about because this was something that I said. I, I'm really happy that 2008 rehabilitated Marx again, because now it's cool to be a Marxist again, which is, which is great. Um, I mean, uh, in, I lived in Germany for a while, and it's, it, it does really make a, a difference after the crisis uh, to be a Marxist and to call yourselves a Marxist, or even what is happening in the US. It's, it's fantastic. Uh, so I'm, I'm really happy that this, uh, uh, whatever, you know, there's still debates about the, 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 what it means to be a socialist or a democratic socialist or a revolutionary, whether these debates are still important, but it's important that they are there. And, and I think just one thing about language. I think language is important in a way that it helps us to unveil what is happening and not to make it more complicated than what it is and to hide the material realities that we live in. So I don't, for me, it doesn't matter what we call it, but I mean, we, I mean, it, it does, in a way, it shouldn't matter what, what, uh, what we call, if we call it the, 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 a class society or if we say the 99 and the 1%, but we need tools that help us to say that, that help us to identify who owns the means of production. And that's what structures the, real, the, the, the world that we live in. And we need words to be able to define uh, that we, I mean, we can call it whatever we want, but that people suffering from racism or sexism. I mean, these are really very concrete realities. And if language does not help us to decode what is already so complex to see, uh, then it's not useful. So we can call it the poetry of future, we can call it whatever we want, but I think language has to be helpful. And I do think that still talking about left and right and uh, capital and, uh, and uh, the working class is still helpful for us to see the material reality that we live in and try to uh, uh, um, put
push aside what is sort of hiding it, uh, because that's exactly how hegemony works. It's to try to hide the, the complex but very real uh, material reality that we live in. And just this for David, and, and I'll pass. Um, what you're saying about, I think this question about the demos is a little bit far off right now, because um, people living under the same circumstances does not automatically create common identities. If it did, oh my God, there would be no capitalism. Because none of us here gains absolutely nothing from capitalism. So uh, uh, suffering, so that's where hegemony and the role of ideology is so, and we cannot unrelate this to our discussion. So uh, uh, the problem is that uh, we need to work from where we are. And so there is no collective actor because people are under the same circumstances. A collective actor is something that we build through struggle and building collective identities. Of course, because we all, but, but if we look at the world, we are all under the same sort of umbrella. But um, so this is the, the, the difficulty about um, imagining that now we can create transnational whatever identities that are away from the historical, imagined, cultural, mm -hmm. political foundations of um, how we've been raised up and, and uh, existing today. Great, okay, I'm gonna take the last very, very, very fast questions and then I'm gonna ask each of them, they're gonna get one minute to make one final declarative statement. Uh, there on the left and then here's, well actually on the way down here in the, in the aisle. Um. David, you articulated the left's horror at nationalism really well, and at the, but the, the danger is you're throwing the baby out with the bathwater, particularly because what you describe is the experience of the 20th century when Labour was fighting with capital, and the capitalists therefore mobilised the nation state to bind Labour to it. That ended in the, 18, in the 1980s, and the nation became this embarrassment everybody. The nation is just the site of, of popular sovereignty. And so identity politics, fragmenting, transnationalism, escaping the nation is what happens. And so what the, in your municipalism, in your transnationalism, the one thing you avoid is the moment of sovereignty where the people can concentrate their power to achieve what they want. That's my anxiety about the, the horror of the nation. It's a historical. Right? On the other hand, and I wonder what you think about this, Lee, maybe it's so 1790s. <laughs> All right, we have there, we have, oh, we've got a lot of you. Okay, quick, quick, quick. Uh, yeah, this is sort of an interrelated issue. Um, I think in some ways, uh, Marxism or the Marxist tradition has lacked the theory of the state. <clears throat> and we've, we've talked a lot, a lot about <clears throat> how the European Union could be an impediment or a constraint on, for instance, a potential carbon government. Um, but the truth is that the state could equally be a constraint in some ways. Um, I'm not British, but I, I think Tony Benn, for instance, faced some issues with the civil service. Um, so what, I, what I'm sort of asking is what would, um, not necessarily constitutional reform, but sort of rethinking of the state according to popular needs, uh, what could it look like? All right, thanks. They're going to have to be snappier than that. I'm sorry, but we're running out of time. Um, <laughs> Right, where do we, where do we have? We had, I know we have there, definitely, and then I think that's it. <laughs> Desperate. So, hi. Uh, I have a question for the guy in the middle. Sorry, I don't remember your name. Because you said that you're an economist politician, 
Therefore, I have a kind of technical question. So I have engaged with, uh, with the political debate, which is, can capitalism be tamed? So there is, as you have mentioned, Marx, before, there is a theory, which is the theory of crisis, which says that capitalism inev inevitably will bring crisis, because in its own nature and it's in its own institutions will bring crisis. So, because you interestingly talked about strategy and about, I think, little concrete paces that can tame capitalism, how would you explain this in concrete terms? Okay, excellent. That might be actually a question we have to discuss in the pub afterwards, because we're going to have to wrap this up one minute from each of you in the reverse order. So I'm going to start with Lee, um, who's making faces at me for only giving him a minute. No. Oh, okay. No. Um, so we've achieved something. So I mean, there was one question that was directed at me. So uh, capitalism cannot be tamed. Crises of capitalism will continue to happen. But as, as the GFC showed, the global financial crisis showed, with the, with the, the left very weak, it doesn't mean that there will be some kind of, you know, rupture and people will rise up and stop it. It has to be grasped. Um, you have to constitute the forces capable of, of actually caging capital and doing something to it. But in the end, I think it has to be overthrown. Uh, and you cannot stop the crisis tendencies of capitalism. I mean, I'm not quite sure I understood your question, but, you know, we can chat afterwards if I've not quite understood. Okay, Katarina. Um... I don't know what to say. Um, <laughs> um, for the first Ben, and, and maybe for you also up there, um, which I, I don't think any of us has actually answered, and I, I don't know if I have an answer to it. I think that the, if we think about, the, just maybe as a last word, um, if we think about the crisis in the European Union and we think about this dynamics of core periphery, we can look at it as a small sort of small scale example to what is what happens in the world. And like, uh, in a way, like the definition of uh, when I talk about Portugal or Greece and we talk about the periphery, actually at the world scale, it's not really a periphery. It's uh, what some people might call a semi-periphery because it's still territorially and economically and politically part of what would be called the world center. But in a way, within the European Union, we can think about all these questions of uneven and combined development, the relation between center and periphery, the, the necessity of coordination, but at the same time, autonomous sorts of struggle uh, at the world level. But I think that's a very vague question that I, it's very hard for me to answer. And just one thing for you. Um, also, no time, maybe we can talk about it later, but I think the, 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 there, there are attempts at, on Marxist theory and beyond it, or also, and other uh, schools of thought, if you want, about the question of rethinking the state. But I think that's absolutely a necessity uh, when we talk about um, um, uh, left strategy. Uh, but I think that's also been part of a big tradition within the left uh, of thinking about the state, how it's constituted, but also about how it can be changed, and also big debates within the left for 100 years about... Uh, differences on the topic. Finally, David, sure. I guess to, to finish, I'd like to really return to my plea to defang this debate and think about the ways in which our approaches are, are complementary and not in conflict. You know, I think 
it's crucial for us to remember that the capital is extremely creative um, at any scale, uh, and that we not fetishize any one of these individual scales as being the solution to our problem, but requiring a mobilization on all of them. I think, you know, what makes me feel anxious when we talk about the European Union as this iron closet of institutions, whatever their merit, you know, the sort of the Troika always wins idea, it's just, it feels like it's not historicized. I mean, all of these things will always change. Like I said in my initial remarks, this thing is in a permanent state of exception precisely because capital requires so much creativity. What that means is that we work together, we fight on all these fronts, and the fact that I call for a transnational movement should not be seen as exclusive of supporting uh, Britons to reclaim democracy in their country because we're going to need to reform at all these scales the institutional arrangements in order to empower people and provide for democracy. And, you know, I, I just, it's crucial that those of us who are fighting for reclaiming the nation state from, from, the, from footloose capital still bear in mind that need to be thinking internationally, to move beyond tweets of solidarity, to fill out a toolbox, and perhaps, yes, to think creatively about what something like an ILO, if we're going to be pragmatic, something like an ILO, something like a UN, God forbid, can be repurposed and transformed. So I just, I think that these, we have to think synthetically about how we can attack the claim that there is no alternative on multiple fronts. All right, thank you. And these all have been brilliant. Can we thank them? Final words, thank you all for coming. Thank you for your superb contributions. I think you've really enlivened the debate. Thanks to Queen Mary once again. Uh, we're Alpha Bunga Bunga, we're only getting started. Uh, this question of sovereignty, at what level, what scale, is something that we're gonna continue discussing. If you're not aware of us, please follow us. Details are there. Uh, finally, uh, if you would like to wear a t-shirt with Berlusconi's <laughs> face on it and some indecipherable <laughs> words, they're for sale for 10 pounds. They would help us out and help us keep going. We'd greatly appreciate that. Uh, finally, 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 we're going to the pub very appropriately. It's a pub called the Horn of Plenty, which I think is also a very appropriate name for two different reasons. Uh, it's 36 Globe Road. I hope you'll all join us. See you there. Thank you all again. <laughs>